0: Hey everyone, Steve here. If you don't know me, I serve as Alberta Director for Apolitics Canada. Before we get started on this week's edition of the AC Podcast, I wanted to let you know of an upcoming event. We have our next AC Literary Expedition scheduled for Sunday, April the 23rd. The title? Cleaning Up the Mess of the Sexual Revolution. Now that's a real catchy title. But we can't take credit for this rather provocative title. I heard it first from our guest, Dr. Jennifer roback Morse, the founder and president of the Ruth Institute. With her, we will discuss and assess the sexual revolution, the kind of ideologies promoted by its advocates, and whether it has truly brought the kind of freedom it promised. Here's a spoiler. The answer is no. Join us on Sunday, April 23rd at 4 to 6 p.m. Pacific Time. That's 1 to 3 a.m. in Germany. So sorry about that. Go to apologeticscanada.com forward slash A-C-L-E and click on Cleaning Up the Mess of the Sexual Revolution. To learn more about it, check out the resources, and to register for the event. Now let me get out of the way so you can get on with Andy's interview with Les Talvio of Cyrus Center. You really don't want to miss this one. Enjoy! Hi, my name is Andy Steiger, and I'm joined today
1: by my friend Les Talvio. It's good to be with you.
2: I'm thrilled to be here with you and uh, look forward to our, our conversation.
1: Today we're going to be talking about your story, and I'm guessing you're probably a little nervous.
2: A bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, I find this really interesting, Les, because you, you contacted me and said, "Listen, Andy, I've never shared my story before. Do I, do I have that right? You've never, you've never shared your kind of people, life story."
2: Yeah, people know bits and pieces of my life story. Um, I've shared my life story in a third party before, but also um, with limited, limited information. Yeah.
1: I did notice that because you wrote down your story to start, and you sent that over to me, and I noticed that you had written it in the third person. It was very much removed, right? Like this is something that happened to that person. Did you do that because it's a painful story?
2: It, if in the first person, it is a painful story. Um, it was, it was a way for me to not be um, dwelling dwelling on it and reliving the pain and, and um, experiences that I, that I went through.
1: Now, we're going to get into this as we get deeper, but I just wanted to ask, you know, as I saw and I read your story, would, was, it, was your impetus to put it in the third person also because there's some shame there?
2: There was shame there. Um, and I think the reason why I can share my Story now is because I, I I don't have any shame being held over me, um, and it was me that was really holding it over myself. Um, but yeah, I
1: think that's a, an important aspect of even of the of the story, right? Is how, how do you how do you get over that shame? And and I just wanted to you know first of all just say thanks, thanks for entrusting me with the opportunity to to you know talk to you as you share your story and to to interview you on this. And for your willingness to, to share this story, because I know that there are many people that will be impacted by it and that you could encourage through it. Now, those people who perhaps don't know you less, uh, I think it'd be helpful just to give people a little bit of background of you know, the, the part that, you know, that most people know you for as the co-founder and the executive director of Cyrus Center. Uh, but they but they haven't heard the story part so they 're going to get to hear the story part in a moment, but bring people up to speed who who perhaps don't don't know about Cyrus Center what that what the work is that you do
2: yeah so Cyrus center is a is a ministry for homeless um, for homeless youth who are um, in the fraser Valley uh, youth that are affected by poverty addiction mental health um Many of the youth that come to us uh, might come at dinner time and have a meal that's provided by the community, and that meal would be the uh, starting point of them exiting the streets. We have shelter services for youth. Um, we have, in fact, we have the only shelter services for youth between Metro Vancouver and the Okanagan. So it's really a it's a huge area that uh, we're in the middle. So we have a location in Abbotsford and a location in Chilliwack um, that mirror each other as far as the services that are provided with a resource center, you know, where basic needs are being met every day with trusted adults. And it's really important to know that when Cyrus sent, before our doors were opened, Abbotsford and the Fraser Valley went through their very first homeless count in 2004. And part of the homeless count that was done then was really comprehensive in that they did focus groups with people on the streets, including youth. And there were so many youth to speak to that they had to do two focus groups wow. and they asked the, the youth the questions, you know, what their experiences were on the streets, why they were on the streets um, and what their what they saw as their top five needs. Now I had the privilege because where I was working at the time to be able to sit in on these focus groups and, and to be there and hear it. And before they rattled it off, I rattled off the five top things that they need in my head. But then the youth spoke and it didn't line up with, with what I was thinking. And it was, it was really interesting to hear from them directly, but the youth wanted a a place where they can um, have something to eat. It was mm-hmm. um, at the time, the only place in, Abbotsford, that you can get something to eat when it wasn't when home wasn't an option, was at the Sikh Temple. Then they wanted a place where they could access showers, um, and and laundry facilities. And again, they gave reasons like how are we supposed to go to school or look for a job or look for a place to live if we're dirty, we smell, you know, we're unpresentable. Uh, they wanted a place that this didn't even make my list at all. Was uh, a place where they could talk to adults, safe adults. That weren't going to judge them because of the way they look or smell or talk or anything, and not just tell them what they need to do, but actually would sit down and listen to them so they could share their story. And then, fifth on their list was um, a place to stay, have, have a safe bed um, that they could stay, because many of these youth were being exploited to meet those basic needs that they talked about. They were having to give of themselves for a cheeseburger or a place to sleep, um, a place to have a shower. After that, um, the report came out and one of the recommendations in their report was a storefront location that was available 24-7 for youth. And no one was doing it in the community. Nobody was doing that specifically in the Fraser Valley at all. And uh, my colleague and I, we approached some churches and we spoke to the ministerial here in Abbotsford about the need. we right off the bat said this needs to be a ministry of the church, not a ministry of a church. Um, we had some great conversations with Northview right at the bat beginning. Northview was like, Hey, we want to be a part of this. Um, so many churches, Hill City, Seven Oaks Alliance, Peace Lutheran. I mean, all these churches uh, transformed central, although they had a different name back then <laughs> um, came to the table and said, yeah, we want, we want to see this happen. And, um, in less than one year, it was open. The doors actually wow. opened for for the first youth to come in to to realize and access those services. And uh, it, here we it are. really
1: grew from there, didn't it?
2: It did. We um, opened in Abbotsford next a home for for youth staffed by house parents and a semi-independent supportive housing for for youth in a family setting. Uh, we have a couple of college students who live on site. Whose role is really be the older sibling in a family group, and they're there to mentor the youth and, and to display appropriate behavior and to partake in the chores and to encourage the other youth to partake in house chores and and the goal is to be able to set these youth off successfully to live independently in the community. Um, and then we right after that we opened in Chilliwack um, at the request of the community and um, the same same services that we do here and then. In 2020, um, we started um, talking with BC Housing and the City of Chilliwack um, about supportive housing for youth. And uh, we were able to open up a um, uh, 22-unit facility apartment building for youth that has 24-hour support on-site, so staff 24-7. We bring in a lot of community supports Um, We've been able to access counseling services on site, different um, medical services, and then support out in the community with these youth. And they could live there for up to two years. And the whole idea is to prepare them for successful independence again out in the community. And now um, uh, we've been called into Alberta and we're looking in the right now in the Edmonton region and working with some people. There and speaking with some churches and opening up a location in Alberta. In fact, that's where I am right now.
1: It's it's wonderful the you know the work that uh, you've been doing. I've had a chance to see that work firsthand, and I've I've always been impressed with the passion that you have for this work. And and the passion you have really for this work is is a part of the story that led to it and mm-hmm. your own you know, experience. I think that there's a lot of us who don't know what it's like to not have a home to go to, that don't have food or clothing or a place to wash, and how important these sorts of things are, uh, particularly to the life of of a young person. Now, Les, I think this is a good place for us to. I mean, we could talk about Cyrus Center. Mm-hmm. I could talk about it for days. <laughs> exactly, yeah. and and it is it is wonderful. But we want to we want to talk about your story that leads us back to Cyrus Center and the the work that it does and why you are so passionate uh, about that work.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I will say for those of you who are watching this, uh, Les does not have a Bono complex. <laughs> He in fact was in a car accident uh, that has impaired his audio and visual uh, processing, and so bright lights can cause uh, you to become, uh, what would you say, uh, dizzy, um,
2: dizzy or overstimulated. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, so if you're wondering why he's got, why he's Not got sunglasses, sunglasses <laughs> yeah, uh,
2: that is why. But
1: let's let, let's let's start telling your story. I, I know this is. You've thought a lot about this. You've prayed a lot about this. And and there's a lot of—I know that there's a lot of pain here. But let's begin by talking about this and, and really not necessarily that we're trying to highlight the pain, but actually the healing that came and that inspires you to help others to heal. Mm-hmm. Where would you say your story begins? Where, where would you start the story, Les?
2: Well, actually, um, what I want to say even f- before— that Cyrus Center, when we talked about Cyrus and where it is, began before I was even born. God had a plan for Cyrus Center. And um, things that happened to me, which I will talk about in just a sec here, um, weren't created by God, but was created by the enemy. And evil things that happened weren't from God, because God doesn't create evil. But he was able to use what happened to me for good, and for my role that was um, that I was destined for with with Cyrus Center. So I guess my my story starts right at the be- beginning, of when I was just a toddler. I mean, my parents were um, were immigrants um, from Northern Europe. I was in my first foster home
1: where, where was this Canada and where in Canada were you,
2: were you born? BC BC. Yeah. I was, I was born in, born in Vancouver. Okay. Um, and early I was in a foster home when I was a toddler. I have no recollection of the foster home. I only know the stories that my sister told my sister was there as well. We were there apparently because my mother was, was ill. Um, and I was told that was because of tuberculosis and so my sister who was eight years older me we were in in this foster home and what I know of it is is from what my sister told me was um for instance how the other kids the, the children of the foster parents would um treat us and I would be tied to a tree in the yard so I couldn't you know leave the yard while the other kids would be out playing and and that uh, the other kids would taunt me and tease me, and just apparently, you know, I'd be there crying at a as I was tied to a tree. My sister was the one that always tried to to keep me safe while we were there. Uh, we were in the foster home for a year, or or thereabouts, and um, we were returned home. And when we returned home, I didn't remember or know my mom. Hmm. And so, about what age were you when you got returned home? About three. And so that I do remember. I remember being afraid or timid of her because I I didn't know. And then one day um, there was a bang or a noise or something that scared me. And I literally jumped to my mom's arms. And that was sort of, uh, I guess, when, um, yeah. Kind of reconnecting. Connected us as as, a... mother and son the next few years after that were typical family life nothing really out of the ordinary and then I don't know what happened but something changed Um, the man who actually I thought was my dad who I found out later wasn't um, became very violent and violence became the norm in the home originally the violence was just taken out on our, on our mom. And no one ever said anything. You know, you didn't talk to anybody about anything that happened. My mom didn't talk to anybody. I remember police coming to our door. Um, and I can remember police officers saying, well, if, if you weren't so hysterical, you know, maybe nothing would happen. So n- there was never any safety net. Or about anyone. how old
1: were you at this time?
2: Five. Five. And when I At that time, the first time that I was ever struck was when I was five. Um, And- What were you thinking
1: when that happened?
2: Well, at the time I was was terrified because my mom said, don't open the door. Do not let him in. He was at the door pounding, yelling, screaming, threatening, cursing. Um, And I was sitting on the edge of the couch, terrified. And my mom was hiding in the bedroom. And all of a sudden he kicked the door in and he came in. The first person he saw was me. And, uh, he started swearing at me, calling me a little piece of bleep bleep. And then hit me so hard that I flew off the couch into the wall. And what I remember about hitting the wall is that I seen these little strips in the wall and, um, never seen what was behind the wall before, you know, it was back in the day when it was plaster Paris uh, yeah. on a... Yeah. So you like, you actually went into the wall. I went into the wall, yeah. yeah. And he proceeded to go beat my mom and he beat her severely um, and he left and she was just on the floor, you know, somewhat conscious and I was there with her, terrified. My sister came home from school and first thing she sees is that the door has been kicked in and comes running in and I'm sobbing over my mom, and, and I remember my sister reaching out to pick me up. And she took me into another room and, you know, assured me everything was going to be okay. And then she went and tended to our mother. Um, wasn't long after that. Um, you know, Beatings and yellings were so frequent that they were actually, it was more normal to have yelling, screaming, um, and my mother being struck than it was to have normal family time and one day he um, had been freaking out my mom he he had been beating her and he told my sister this is what happens if you're gonna go against what I say and he took her to the doorway took the door and he slammed it on her arm and snapped her arm in front of us um, and then again left Um, it was it was a terrifying time to as a child to grow up there
1: must have just been fear just
2: anytime he was in the room and spoke, house. even if he spoke, you know, quietly and gently and, and stuff, there was always a fear of what's going to happen.
1: Yeah. I remember you told me that one time you, you spoke at the table.
2: Mm-hmm. And my, my, you weren't sure about what yeah, happened when that, when you speaking. So we're probably around eight at the time, or I was eight. And my sister and I were, were well, we all were at the dinner table mm-hmm. and, um, by this time we also, had, I had a little brother. Um, my brother was would have been a toddler at that point. Um, we were at the dinner table and I can remember that supper was soup. And it was like a cream of celery soup or whatever. And I can remember the, the bowls looked like. They were not deep bowls, they were wide, shallow kind of bowls. And there was a jug of milk on the table, which was back in the day was a carton, you know, big square carton. And we're having supper, and my sister is sitting beside me, and we, I have no idea what we spoke about, but we're just talking, and all of a sudden he got up from the table and casually walked around the table, came up from behind us, grabbed us by the head, and then yelled at us about talking at the table, and he held our faces in our soup, and um, our mother is like screaming at him to stop, what are you doing? And he then took the whole table and flipped the table upside down, everything flying. And he grabbed our mother and he threw her to the floor and ordered her to clean it up. And um, when she was done cleaning it up, he dragged her into the basement and beat her with an ax handle. And again, left. He wasn't a father figure, he was a monster. I remember um, you
1: saying too he, that she lost teeth in that.
2: She, yeah, she ended up losing all her teeth. What teeth she had left after that were were removed. But again, nothing happened. There was no, no um, action. There was no one coming to the house to see if we're okay or what's that, going it,
1: on. I could only imagine the sense of hopelessness that that you would you would feel. Because I know one thing, you know, you you've you've brought this up before about not only about your story but about those that you've encountered with uh, through Cyrus Center. Is, is this feeling that there's no one to call to? There's no one to appeal to for help just and if you don't feel like you can call out for help there's no one that cares if you will yeah it's just the hopelessness is even deeper
2: that's right and there and we were always told not to tell anybody and you don't talk to people you know you don't talk to strangers you don't talk to anyone there was this real um fear held over us to not say anything at that time i was in catholic school as well so I knew of God and I believed in God, but I didn't know God. Mm. Um, definitely didn't know that I could have a relationship with Christ or anything like that. Um, but the uh, the beatings and um, the yelling was just so, so frequent. There was even a time I was um, playing in the backyard with a friend. I was told not to climb, climb the fence. And we're back there. And my friend and I were playing and what do we do? We, we climb the fence and, um, I fell off and I landed on my arm, which ended up being a broken arm. Um, and I was terrified to tell my parents because of what might happen to me or my mom. Because, And so I was trying to hide it. And I remember my mom coming out and she saw me sitting there on the stairs with my friend. And, and uh, he told her, he goes, I think he broke his arm. And, uh, and I, I was more afraid of, what was going to happen now than anything to do about my arm. And I remember the man that was, uh, who I thought was my dad just yelling at me and screaming at me and, and say, well, he's not going to the hospital. He's not, forget it. And, um, eventually they did take me to the hospital and, uh, I had a broken arm. Um, you know, I should have been able to run inside crying cause I hurt, fell and hurt my arm. And, mm-hmm. um, Instead, I was trying to hide it because it wasn't safe for me to.
1: Yeah. Instead to do of so. going to your parents for love, you, in fear, wanted to stay stay away. And what might happen? Yeah. yeah. What What happened? Did did, how did you find out that this wasn't your father?
2: So it happened a few years later. So, the day before my tenth birthday, he left, and didn't know that that was the last time we were ever going to see him and but he he left and when he when he had left at that time m- my mom she wasn't alive anymore she just she existed mm. um she's a shell a, of a person a shell of a person deep depression um and had become addicted to different pharmaceutical drugs um and back then there was there, things weren't linked by computer so she had different doctors and was getting drugs from different doctors which later became um, from different drug, drug dealers. Um, so at when I was 10, she wasn't able to provide for my brother or, or myself. And just before he left, my sister had left. Um, she left and uh, went to the States. And uh, wasn't, she wasn't coming back. And I was so lost now because my sister was my protector. Hmm. Um, and that was that was the one constant good thing in my life. Mm. And now she was gone, and um, I really felt abandoned. But I also know that she had to escape for herself. So when I started looking after my brother. I would go door to door singing Christmas carols to raise funds to get some food for my brother and I. I used to steal bottles off of people's back steps to go cash them in clothes off clothesline somewhere. So you really needed to become the the parent in the house. I did. And um, everything we had, whether it was furniture, toys, a bike um, was sold. And that money went into went into my mom's addiction. And um, we had nothing going to school I was bullied because of the maybe the clothes I was wearing, and also being hungry. Yeah. Um, the, you know, you're at school and you're hungry, and other kids would have a lunch and stuff, and they say, "Hey, can I have a bite?" or "Could I?" and they would tease you for that. Um, and you know, it, it's such an interesting
1: thing for those who aren't experiencing that. That it's, you know, when you're when they're coming to school, right, and they're seeing somebody that you know has you know old clothes on and they're dirty and they're hungry to not appreciate what what could be going on at home Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know and because that's one of the things that goes through my mind you know as i hear you talking less is always thinking okay is man am i really being thoughtful or or caring about the people i'm encountering and what could potentially be going on at you know at
2: home behind the scenes sort of thing yeah i mean when you whether it's homeless adults or, or youth or whatever is going on everybody has a story Everybody has a story and their story is different. Some people have similarities in their stories, but everyone has a story that's unique to them just as yeah. they are a unique creation of of God. So, I guess that's true. I mean,
1: you know, on that hand, you could have people that might come with nice clothes on, absolutely. but their home could be just as broken. Yep.
2: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we see youth at at Cyrus Center who have a home, um but maybe money that would be spent on food. Might be going to support their parents' own addictions, or, or um, utilities aren't being paid because money is going into addictions. Um, and even now, uh, with the increase in rents and the costs of food, um, there's parents not able to provide just because of the uh, poverty level they're at with the inflation that we're dealing with. We see families living in cars and tents and um, wanting the best for their um kids but not able to provide because of the current situation that they may be, may be living in and,
1: and having talked with you on this i this this issue is a lot bigger than many
2: of us fully appreciate Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, it's it's uh it's everywhere. You know, you don't necessarily see kids pushing shopping carts or carrying a bag of bottles over their shoulder. Um they're wearing ripped jeans, and youth are buying ripped jeans, so they don't even look any, necessarily look any different. Um, and so they're easy to be unseen, the the hidden homeless in, in our cities and schools and in our communities.
1: Well, I hate to say this, but your story, which is already bad,
2: takes an even worse turn. It did. Um, when I was 12, my sister had moved back and which was exciting and great and so i went to go see her one day and just before i got to her place someone intercepted me and had different plans and i was brutally raped mere meters from my sister's home and thought i was going to die in fact i was told I was going to die, not to say a word, don't yell, don't scream, don't anything, or I was going to die. And um,
1: this person is basically saying, I'm going to kill you if you say anything. Yeah. How old were you at this
2: time? I was 12. I was 12 years old. And I remember an inside voice, which I totally believe was of God that gave me the strength and the courage to yell out a name that was of someone that wasn't even there, but as if they were there. And that was enough to distract the person that I was able to escape. Um, I left bloody and sore. And I remember running through different backyards and alleys and stuff. So he couldn't find me or find where, where I lived and I ran home, and again, no one to tell, there's nothing um, I could do, and I remember hiding in my bedroom and, and uh, being terrified, and um, yeah, that was uh, a time where I was sure I was going to die, and had I not, especially had I not uh, called out, and I really believed that that was. God gave me that at that time to to intervene. and That
1: must have been a, a serious low
2: point.: It was, and it's something that I had kept um, buried deep within me for for so many years. In fact, most of my the things that I went through, my mother went through, um, I had kept buried deep, deep down inside of me. From shame? From shame, from not wanting to re, re relive, relive um, anything that had happened. Would you say that's
1: the lowest of the of the shame for you? Is this the part of the story you really don't want to talk about?
2: It was the hardest part of my story to talk about. Um, and things didn't end there either. Yeah. Um, I had um, talked before, you know, I stole off of people's back porches or bottles or things to provide for my brother and I. Um, I also stole, when I was 14, um, with some other youth for the thrill of it. Um, And it was, for me, it was um, acceptance with some other youth that longing for some some kind of belonging mm. and we we stole we actually uh, we stole some beer bottles uh, some beer from a brewery that was on strike and we had climbed over the wall and we didn't see anybody and but we were seen and uh, we came out and the police were sitting out there waiting for us and um it was actually the day before my 14th birthday and uh yeah, and that's when I actually found out about my real dad. We were um taken into the police station and the other two boys that were arrested their parents came and got them and um, my mom didn't have a phone and they had no way of getting a hold of her and they were going to take me to juvie and I was terrified like I did not did not wanna go there and I remember the other one of the other moms said, well, "I do know where he lives and stuff. So I can I'll take him home and" And let his mom know it, so she did. And um, I remember my mom was furious, and my uh, sister came over, and and there was this big argument that uh, ensued, and and uh, my sister saying, "I think it's time he knows who his real dad is." And I'm quiet, and my mom was my mom was furious, and they told me that. This monster that was had been in our life wasn't my dad, and uh, told me who my real father was, and, um, and that which then led to them. Was that you.
1: was that positive or negative for you? Like, what kind of emotions were you
2: feeling? So th- then it was just I felt anger, um, and I was confused, um, and then the, the 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 argument changed from them being mad at me for being arrested was now my mother was furious that I was had been told. Um, so th- they, they had a big fight. Um, I remember going to court because I was charged and uh, the other two boys were there and their parents were there with them and I didn't have anyone with me and the judge gave them six months probation um, but gave me a year's probation because he was concerned because I, there was no, no one there with me that I didn't have the proper support. So, um, so I was punished, um, twice as hard. And, um, my mum's sp- continued to spiral downhill and start using illicit drugs. And, um, I was sexually assaulted again when I was 14 as well, and again, no one was no one was the wiser i was apprehended and brought into care when i was 15. and i i was living in a group home and when i was there i was told i'd be there for six weeks they'll you know do an assessment see how i'm doing yeah and so when i was there for six weeks i was on my best behavior i did everything that they wanted me to do Uh, didn't miss a minute of school did you know I was the perfect, perfect teenager. And I remember them, we're all there having a meeting afterwards, after six weeks, and they're all saying, he's just responded so well, he's done so great that while he's here, that we think we should keep him in in care and continue. And I was mortified.
1: Because you're doing all this so you can get out. So I can get out. (laughs) And And, and now it's making them
2: want to keep you longer. So I, like the flip of a switch, I was... Going to do anything and everything to get kicked out, and um, it wasn't uh, wasn't a positive experience. It it caused me to breach probation. My probation kept getting extended, um, and I went to go see my mom and I went to her house, walked in on her and her drug dealer, and he was kind of in her face and they were arguing, and um, I got him got in between them and. Kind of pushed him back and, in no uncertain terms, told him to stay away from my mom. And he proceeded to pull out a gun and pistol with me. And I was down on the floor, and my mom proceeded to complete her drug transaction as I laid there on the floor bleeding. And it was, it was, um, is that a new this, low? It was a, it was the lowest of lows that I felt. This was like, she had no concern for me whatsoever. She didn't care, and um, I ended up stealing a bunch of her drugs because I was going to end my life. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um,
1: you, at this point, you're just ready to give up.
2: Give it up. So I took the drugs, and
1: um, how, how old in. were you again? Fifteen. Fifteen.
2: And I locked myself in my mom's room, and uh, she. Well, I mean, she went to a neighbor, a neighbor that was living upstairs and, and they ended up calling ambulance. And I was taken to the hospital and, and at the hospital, I was made the drink, some horrible black liquid that they used to pump your stomach. And, and, uh, yeah, thankfully I didn't follow through with it. And that there was that prevention, um, but it was definitely a new um low with my mom and my mom after that also told me that uh you know you'll never amount to anything more than a ditch digger
1: so did that kind of feel like the last safety net the last bit of hope that maybe you felt was tethering you to this life had been snapped
2: yeah absolutely i was uh, <clears throat> um when i turned 17 and my probation ended and i was determined to complete my probation without getting into any kind of trouble. That was, I didn't want to go to jail. Like I didn't want to go into real jail. Was in juvie a few times for, you know, breach of probation.
1: So at this time you have been in juvie, but you don't want to go back. So, because I think it's interesting because the question that I would want to ask is, you know, what are you looking forward to in life? Like what kind of, what, you know, what kind of hope do you have? And Seems like the, the most hope that you have is just not to go to jail.
2: And that was, I, I did not want to go to adult jail. And um, I wanted to complete my probation. I didn't want to end up in adult jail because I, I, I was afraid that what would happen to me in there. Um, I, I just ended up uh, all over the place. Really, like, I didn't have a home of my own at the time. I was, I couch surfed and slept at different places found a cheap rental, um, more was, or less
1: homeless at this point.
2: Yeah. Homeless in, uh, in really in that, not even anyone to turn to like, um, my and sister is this in Vancouver, in where Vancouver. this is happening. Yeah. I lived in, it all took place in East Vancouver.
0: Okay.
2: Um, when I was 19, I got a job in a bar and I was hired as a bouncer. And so I started working in the bar and which opened me up to a whole lot of other things. And the lifestyle then turned into a lifestyle of party, you know, and it was it was an opportunity to escape. You know, you drank, you did drugs um, and you went back to work and you repeat the cycle. Um, You know, after work, it would be party until the wee hours of the morning. and this continued until the day I met my, met my wife.
1: Let, let me ask you a question about this. You know, given that you had grown up in such a broken home and that there was so much anger and fighting, did you struggle with anger? Did
2: you struggle?: I was a yeller. yeah, yeah. I was I was really um, someone who yelled yelled a lot. Um, I got into got into fights um, but I got out of more fights because I would intimidate the other person. Through the escalation, I could take it with my, with my My voice. Yeah. Yeah. And again, even through all this time, I still believed in God. And I prayed every night, but I prayed a habitual prayer every night. It wasn't, wasn't um, a prayer of faith or um, anything. It was just I prayed the same prayer night after night after night because I felt if I didn't, I would jinx myself or something bad would happen. That was um, where so that... So God was kind of like a good luck
1: yeah. charm sort of idea.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And then one day, um, it was actually my wife's 19th birthday. Um, she came in with her friends into this bar that I was working at to celebrate her birthday. And I asked her for idea. All of them at the door for their ID, and and uh, she was excited to show her ID because she's 19, and that was the first time we met.
1: Which I should say for any American listeners, <laughs> it's yeah. 21 in the U.S., but it's 19 in Canada yeah. to drink alcohol.
2: Yeah, 18 in Alberta. Um, <laughs> so we knew each other, and then a, a few months later, um, her and... And her girlfriend and my friend and I, we went out on a, on a date, with the four of us, and, and um, we, had a, we had a great time. We went to a Western club of all places, and we ended up going, it was winter, went tobogganing in Stanley Park. It's not a great place to go tobogganing, but we found a, like a creek bed, and it little, felt, looked like a little slalom run, and we went tobogganing, and my friend wiped out, and I said, I'll show you how, how it's done, because I'm going to show off, and... Of these two girls and I hit the same bump he did except when I wiped out the toboggan went straight up the air came back down on the bridge of my nose and broke my nose and off to the our uh, first date ends up in the emergency downtown St. Paul's but uh it didn't scare her off thankfully and uh, we went out again shortly thereafter just the two of us and because there's something so different about her mm-hmm. there was something so Intriguing. She although she came there to party on her nineteenth she wasn't a party girl. You know, she um went out on a date with me, but she wasn't a party girl and she had these amazing standards and morals and and uh it was so intriguing and and so attracting that, you know, we we dated for a while and and um it was like all of a sudden my things I was involved in, it was like wasn't important to me anymore. And I, did, or I didn't need it. I also had someone that uh, loved me, for me, not because they could get something from me or anything like that. In fact, I, I had nothing really, <laughs> uh, to because she was one that had a car and she was the one that had a good job. And but uh, we ended up getting married. Uh, so a year and a half later, uh, we had our first child a year after that. And, you know, we have three amazing, three amazing children and six amazing grandchildren, Um, but then my life didn't stop. There was, or I thought there was still something missing that walked out of our marriage. How long had you been married? Uh, So we were a bit, probably would have been married about 10 years at the time. Um, yeah, 10 years.
1: And you felt like there was something missing.
2: Yeah, it was like, I, and I didn't even have a reason. I just told her I don't want to be married anymore. And she was, you know, we hadn't been fighting, nothing been going on. And of course it made no sense to her. And I didn't, I didn't even know what it was that was going. And I I literally walked out of our house and I don't want to be married anymore. And I walked away and I stayed away for three weeks and, um, you know, she kept trying to reach out to me, and, and, uh, like, what's going on, we need to talk, like, and I couldn't talk to her, because I didn't know what was going on, and I couldn't Mm. tell her, and I ended up praying about it, and it was just, like, what am I doing, like, I was praying, I was, like, how am I praying, that wasn't my habitual prayer, it wasn't, and, um, I called her up, and I said, we need to talk, and we did, and, and, um, we went we went to some counseling and and we were thankfully able to save our marriage and now we've been married for over 40, 40 years wow and uh it was shortly thereafter that i that i came came to the Lord and it started in the workplace I'm working with the same population I'm working with now um, through a secular secular agency and um so, There's you were working
1: with homeless
2: youth? Homeless youth and adults at the no. time, okay. yeah. And um, our place I worked at was going through some big changes. And um, part of it, there was some stuff that was happening that wasn't necessary, well, wasn't ethical. And uh, one of the staff came to me and she said, She, did, she said, I don't believe our boss. She but I believe you. And she says, you tell me that these changes were always part of the plan, and I can accept it. But I can't accept the other person giving giving her the, the, the answer. And I looked her straight in the eye, and I lied to her. And I told her, yeah, it was part of the plan. And I went home, and I was so sick to my stomach. This person trusted me so much. And I remember them looking me straight my eye and willing to take my word as the truth and that night i cried out to god in a way i've never ever had before and i told i can't do this i can't do this by myself i need you i need i need you to help me and that night it was like like our whole room went bright and that a lightning bolt went through me it was just the most incredible experience I'd ever felt in my life. And, and I felt the presence of God and I just felt this difference, this light, lightness that had come upon me. And I went to work the next morning. And uh, there was a fellow there that I worked with, um, a Christian guy, and I told him what had happened. And he, he said to me, he says, I believe you were met by the Holy Spirit. And uh, he says, have you, ever, have you ever prayed to accept Christ? And I said, no, I haven't. And we did right there and then. And he goes, oh, you got to come tell Ruth. And Ruth was our admin assistant. And he says, you got to tell her. And we went over to Ruth and we told her. And she starts weeping. And she says, I've been praying and praying for you last year she says i bought you something that i've been wanting to give you but wait for the right time and she opens up her drawer and there was this package and it was wrapped in plain brown wrapper with a raffia bow on it and had my name written on the package and i opened it up and it was my first bible wow and um everything everything changed at that moment i mean i remember my boss coming into work and um he's talking to me a bit about what was going on. I said, you know, I can't lie for you anymore. And he goes, Oh, please. He says, don't tell me you become one of them born again Christians. I said, actually I have, and he was livid. He, he, he yelled and he screamed and slammed doors. He was so angry. And, and I felt so light and so good. And I just wanted, I just wanted to know everything possible about Jesus and to walk with him and to learn how to walk with him and. What, and
1: would you say you know? Less hearing your story and just hearing you go from just just every string of hope that had been snapped in your life, it, it almost seems like hearing you talk about this. It was like the, for the first time you've been like reconnected to hope again. Absolutely,
2: um, it was. Uh, it was such an incredible journey to see what how life changed for me and you know i've come to a point where i realized that um everything that happened to me you know i used to say you know yeah god used that or god did that to help me prepare for this well god doesn't create evil right. god doesn't make you go through evil experiences And that, that's the work of of the enemy that's the work of satan However, God can use evil for His good. Like He can take something from the pain and the suffering that I went through um, and use it for good yeah. and to prepare me for.
1: What... He can make something beautiful out of something broken. Absolutely. So, Les, you have now placed your trust in, in Jesus. You've, you've mm-hmm. placed your hope in Jesus, and your life is is you know really being transformed. I'm curious to see or to know, you know, how did you tell your wife about that and
2: what kind of impact did that have on you and your wife? So so when I accepted the Lord um, and I came home and I actually told my wife, and at that point, everyone always thought my wife was a Christian. I mean, she's this good, moralistic, um, just such a giving person. And I remember when I told her, she said to me, her first words, I mean, she goes, Well, what's that mean? Isn't that something we should have talked about first? <laughs> and, it was, it, 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 we, we, and that's what we do. We laugh about that. And um, so she, she's, her first thoughts that she told me afterwards were, You know, oh, this is a fad. Yeah, this is a fad. He's going to, two weeks down the road, he's going to be onto something else. or But I wasn't. And Things in my personal life changed. I didn't realize um, how much I swore. Mm. Uh, I completely stopped swearing without even, like, not with by, because um, I was putting effort into it. It mm-hmm. just it stopped. And I, it was actually here at Northview where I heard uh, someone being baptized and someone that I knew, and um, part of his testimony was, you know, I really knew that Jesus was real. When I saw less, no longer swearing wow. so that's that's how much yeah, I had no idea. Um, and then what church were you going to, by the way, at this time when you came to faith? Um, so when I came to faith, my first church actually was Seven Oaks Alliance. Oh, okay, yeah, so at that time you were living here in Abbotsford, yep. yeah, living here in Abbotsford, and um, now
1: when you came to faith, I'm guessing that this became the seed of Cyrus Center?
2: Like where, where, did, where did Cyrus Center come in the midst of this story? So it, it right near the beginning, all of a sudden I started writing a plan of a Christ-centered service for, for youth. And I wrote this plan and um, thought I had crossed all my T's and dotted all my I's. And I had this, this ministry plan moving forward. And um, I remember sharing it with pastor at Seven Oaks. And he read it and he says, oh, this looks great. He says, but he says, Abbotsford's not ready for it. And neither are you. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what the heck's he talking about? I was really taken aback and it's like, I mean, I'm not ready for it. Well, he was so right. And with the words of wisdom that he, he spoke, um, at the time I needed to, I had a lot of growing in my faith to do. Um, and I had, a. Uh, needed to learn about ministry as well and so i i um, actually got involved with a christian organization and um, was was working in ministry and learned all the ins and outs and the difficulties of mm-hmm. raising support and and making something like that happen when you don't have when you don't have the the government's works previously where i worked you know, it was all government funded and it was right. it was easy
1: I'm, I'm, I can only imagine what's going on too with your wife. So I'm guessing that your wife came to
2: faith over time. Yeah, as my son, you guys went to church and our children. And um, actually, our, my son was actually the first one in our family to come to faith. But uh, well,
1: then what is she thinking now
2: that you're like wanting to go into you know this ministry? She was terrified, <laughs> especially because I had to raise my support. Right, and she was um, like, "What are we going to do?" And we we actually went into quite a bit of debt. Um, See, while, per- personally, you put a lot into this. Yeah, as far as going into ministry before Cyrus entered, okay, before we opened it. And then, um, but I realized that I could raise the support. I couldn't, it was one thing to raise support for myself, but it was another thing to raise support for a ministry. And we we talked about it. We definitely prayed about it. We sought out wisdom of different pastors and friends and we had started a steering group here in the community that included different pastors and and di- people from different organizations, and someone donated ten thousand dollars, and the the group says we think you should make the, get the ball rolling and make this happen. So they said this is how much we'll we'll pay you, and so they said they would pay me. So it was can be pay me for three months, and. Um, we literally stepped out in faith, and as soon as we stepped out in faith and actually took risk, um, God flung the doors wide open. He didn't just give us open it a little crack so we could see what might be possible; he flung it wide open, and um, you
1: know, I, I I remember somebody once saying to me that God's love language is faith, mm-hmm. and i think there's a lot of truth to that absolutely uh because i you know with running apologize canada i have encountered the exact same thing yeah Uh, you know god really does want you to take those steps of faith where you're following where you're trusting and god god provides now you're about to say something as as you were
2: heading into this that and god's providing so god has has provided all along all along the way the big things the little things um and and I'd love to share a story of of just showing you how these little things um, work. Um, so we've never, by the way, never been short money to pay a bill. We've never been short to pay staff, you know, to, to meet our obligations. God has provided all along the way. We had a young... In what year did you start it? 2004. So we've been running for 18 years now. And in 2007... We're in a new building that we're at, in right now and we had this girl there. She is uh, fairly new to, for us. She'd been on the streets, sexually exploited, um, dr- heavy drug use, homeless. So she's with us and I'm explaining to her where the coffee was. She wanted a coffee and I showed her the coffee bar and um, she's pouring the coffee. She's looking, she goes, she says, I don't want coffee, mate. She says, don't you guys have any milk or cream? I said, no, sorry, we don't. I said, it's not in our, it's not in our budget for it. We, have, we have coffee mate. And she goes, well, you're a bunch of Christians here. Why don't you pray for it? And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll show you. I said, yeah, okay, we will. I said, come here. <laughs> and I called up two other staff. We joined hands, and I prayed for milk. I didn't pray. I wasn't praying out of faith. I wasn't praying because I thought, now milk's going to come to us. And, but, you know, I got this teenager's. Challenging me, so let's let's pray. So I pray, and um, and and no sooner did I finish praying, and in Jesus name, Amen, that the front door opens and this lady walks in, and she's got four jugs of milk. (laughs) And she goes, "Excuse me," she says, "I was just wondering if you guys could use some milk." This girl, this teenage girl, she starts screaming hysterically, like she's just freaking out. I all of a sudden have tears coming down my face, and. (laughs) This lady starts apologizing. She's, oh, "I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to do anything." And we tell her what happens. She starts crying, and she had was new to the community, and she come to Northview, and she was in in some women's group and talking about where she, how she wanted to get involved in the community, and someone told her about Cyrus Center. So she thought, "Kids like milk. I'll bring some milk." And uh, God honored that prayer, even though it wasn't a prayer of faith, because He also wanted to show me. I take care of the little things. The little things are just as important to me Mm -hmm. as are the big things keeping a roof over our head, right? You need to trust me. You need to trust me. And what's really, really unique about the story, we have now, we have milk delivered every Monday since then. We have not had a shortage of milk. There's been milk for coffee or cereal or whatever. Ever since then in 2007, and it, can, it continues at our Chilliwack Center as well. We have milk,
1: yeah. and there, there's so many, you know, rabbit trails I would love to run mm-hmm. down with you on all of this. Last, but one, that I think would be just important for us to tie into this is your story and how it's led, you know, to Cyrus Center. And I, I'm guessing from hearing your story that Cyrus Center really was a facility that you wish
2: as a young person Absolutely. that you had had. I want a place where youth will be fed. That has milk. That, that has milk. <laughs> that they're going to receive nutrition without any questions. We feed them because they're hungry. We are provide them shelter because they need shelter. Clothing because they need clothing. And love and support because that's what they need. Um, we're a ministry of just being there. We're there 24-7, 365 days of the year. We operate from a place of grace in that youth may try to burn bridges or have have behaviors that might get them kicked out of other places. And we're gonna continue to show them grace as long as it's not putting anyone um, safety at risk. Um, We want these youth have every chance that they can receive to have success and support and to know jesus and if that means um letting them back in after some inappropriate behaviors or or you know not following an expectation we're going to do so and because um, you
1: know really what i hear you saying is you know you want to you want to introduce these youth to hope absolutely right and that that they're um that they don't need to give up on life and that there is one who truly does love them. And that and this is I think part of beautiful part of your story, which is a part of a much bigger story, the story of the church about people whose lives have been changed by Jesus, and that we have the privilege of
2: being the change we wish we had. Yeah. We have seen so Received. many so many youth, you know, coming to the Lord, being baptized, um certain Lord youth uh, we now have youth who at one time, we're receiving our services. Who now work for us? Um, youth who've gone on to get married, go on to get degree in social work, um, become homeowners, um, and we we've seen tragedies as well, um, with the opiate crisis, and um, which is just so heartbreaking. Yeah, uh, so many even of those youth we've had the opportunity to speak Jesus into their lives, and and. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's an incredible ministry to be a part of because I get to see the the other staff who are ministering to these kids the way I'd I'd want to be minister ministered to and they're giving of themselves and it's uh...
1: listen, I, I hope that as people are have heard your story, mm-hmm. which by the way, thank you for thank sharing you. it. Because I, I hope that they see that what started in such darkness and such brokenness, as we've talked and and, and we've come now to back full circle to Cyrus Center, so much hope and beauty and um, you know potential for restoration and reconciliation, and that this this really is not just your story. This is the Christian story. Mm-hmm. This is a, this is a story that that we can all have in in Christ. Absolutely. And I hope it encourages people. So thank you thank you for sharing, and I pray that it encourages people. If people want to know more about Cyrus Center, where do they go?
2: Um, They can go to our website, cyruscenter.com. They can uh, visit one of our centers. We're always happy to give people a tour. There's different events that we do throughout the year, like one coming up end of February, the coldest night of the year, which is a walk to help raise funds and awareness
1: which my family has been a part of. It is a- awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good way. You know, I think sometimes we don't like to walk our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we don't like to look at what's going on. And I think wherever you are right now, there is homelessness going Absol- on. Oh, yeah. It, it's an epidemic. Uh, but, that, but not just feeling despair, but what I really appreciated with Cyre Center and, and walking our own community was that there's, that there's hope and that we can see change um, and that we can be a, a light and help in our, own, in our own community. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Les, uh, for joining me. Really appreciate you sharing your story, and I, I just pray that Cyrus Center will continue to be a light, not only here in British Columbia and various cities, but seeing it be, uh, be a resource across Canada, particularly right now as you guys are in Alberta.
2: Thank you, and um, I look forward to uh, sharing more highlights uh, as they happen.